So what are the insurance claim ramifications of the recent whopping judgment against Johnson & Johnson on its first opioid trial in Oklahoma? Hi, this is Kevin Quinley of Quinley Risk Associates, and I'd like to welcome you to the Claims Coach Podcast, the podcast delivering tips, tools, and techniques to help great claim and risk professionals get even better at managing their claims, their time, their resources, and their careers. This week's episode is a hot take, an admittedly hot take, with regard to the recent award of some $500 million against Johnson & Johnson in connection with its marketing and manufacturing by certain divisions of J&J of the painkillers, opioids. Now, a couple of disclaimers. I happen to be a Johnson & Johnson shareholder. Uh, that doesn't make me a critic of J&J, and it certainly doesn't make me a fanboy of them either. Also, I must confess that uh, I have a close family member who has been touched by the opioid epidemic, and it is an epidemic. And if you are not involved with it in any way, shape, or form, good for you. But um, if you are, if you have a member of your family who is touched by the opioid epidemic, it sensitizes you to the expanse of the problem. So let me offer six or seven reactions from a claims person. I'm not an attorney. This is, this is not legal advice. But as a claims person who spent the majority of my 42-year claims career handling product liability claims, some reactions and thoughts pertaining to the Johnson & Johnson, Oklahoma verdict. Uh, number one, I think it's ironic that its stock actually went up upon hearing the news of this event. The judgment was for $570-some million at the time, and the stock jumped up 3.6% upon hearing the news of that award, $572 million. Uh, the shares closed up over 1% on the day of the award. So anybody who thought that J&J stock was going to tank because of this hit um, was probably disappointed. And expectations are everything because the state of Oklahoma who was the plaintiff in this action, sought $17 billion. And J&J got hit with only, quote-unquote, $572 million. So compared to what it could have been, I suppose, it was a mild hit. But in the words of the late Illinois Senator Everett Dirksen, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. Same with a half a million here and a half a million there. So number one, ironically, in the investors... Uh, were bullish on on J&J because of what they were braced for. Number two, however, as a bellwether case, this is not a good sign for Johnson & Johnson. I'm sure that its vast flotilla of legal team uh, gave considerable thought to what case would be the best case right out of the box to take to trial. And so they picked the one from Oklahoma. 
this is a so-called bellwether case in that the fate of this case can set the tone for good or bad for future litigation. And uh, future litigation, J&J uh, &J certainly has. I think they have over a thousand, perhaps close to 2,000 pending lawsuits involving uh, opioid addiction and the idea that uh, certain divisions of J&J are legally culpable and liable for the manufacture and marketing of these highly addictive drugs. So as a canary in the mine, I would say the canary died as a bellwether case. It's not a good omen for Johnson & Johnson. Um, number three, however, the fat lady hasn't sung yet. Uh, the reason is because J&J &J has maintained and has pledged the fact that they are going to appeal uh, the civil judgment. They believe that the outcome, quote, disregards the company's compliance with state and federal laws, the unique role its medicines play in the lives of people who need them, and its responsible marketing practices. They also claim that the company had a small role in the opioid crisis and that its drugs represented only 1% of prescriptions in Oklahoma and the United States. It, it almost sounds like among the defenses that J&J &J advanced was a federal preemption type of defense, uh, which essentially is uh, the manufacturer saying, look, uh, the black box warnings and other types of warnings that we used were approved by the federal government. And if that is the case, then we should not be uh, able to be sued for defective warnings. It passed muster with the government. So, um, the on the one hand, you've got $572 million awarded <clears throat> for plaintiffs and for the state of Oklahoma to put toward rehabilitation, uh, education services, research, etc. I'm sure that the plaintiff lawyers would get a huge cut. Um, on the other hand, it may be some time, a long time, before the state or the plaintiffs see dollar one for this judgment because of J&J's determination to appeal. Observation number four, insurance coverage may not be heavily involved. And I say that uh, may not be because uh, I expect I'm not, I'm not privy to the insurance arrangement for product liability that Johnson & Johnson has. However, as a Fortune 500 company, Johnson & Johnson, I would expect to have a massive self-insured retention, perhaps be self-insured for product liability, or self-insured uh, up to some uh, catastrophic point uh, above which it has excess insurance coverage for product liability. So um, depending upon <clears throat> the ultimate magnitude of these losses, Issues with regard to insurance coverage uh, may not be heavily involved, but if the tab runs into the billions, then there may be issues with regard to coverage, with regard to trigger of coverage, whether the amounts uh, constitute damages uh, versus uh, educational and rehabilitation expenses, um, intentional conduct, things of that nature. So we'll have to see if... Uh, if the, this wave of litigation ultimately has reverberations in insurance coverage litigation. Number five, I think that the uh, result 
should cause us to reassess the whole deterrence theory of trying cases. Now, the deterrence theory, we've probably all heard it before, is claims people that you, you need to try cases in order to deter future frivolous claims. Okay? That works if you actually win the trial. The effectiveness of the deterrent effect uh, succeeds and works best if you're pretty much guaranteed to win uh, because then you demonstrate that, that you can win and that you have the you have the will and the resources to take cases to trial. The deterrence theory doesn't work that well if you roll the dice, if you gamble, and you lose. In that case, you're going to get a lot more publicity than you would have had you discreetly entered into a settlement. So <clears throat> now, I don't think plaintiffs or other state attorney generals will be deterred uh, from suing J&J for the societal costs that they believe that they are shouldering due to the opioid epidemic. To the contrary, I think they will be emboldened and think that they have a, a much better chance now because of the result of this bellwether case. Number six, I think we may see at some point J&J revisiting the option of a global settlement um, versus piecemeal defense. This Oklahoma case was uh, one part of the puzzle in terms of defending individual cases one by one, that can be very expensive. Uh, I'm sure that uh, paying the uh, flotilla of attorneys that they had defending them uh, was very expensive, just putting aside the $572 million uh, judgment. But whenever you're going to trial, you are subject to the vagaries of judges and juries, and you never it's sort of like Forrest Gump said, uh, uh, jury trials and court trials are like a bunch of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And this was a bench trial. Had it been a jury trial, who knows how much they, they might have awarded against Johnson & Johnson and for the good citizens of Oklahoma. There are precedents within the opioid litigation product liability space for other comparable manufacturers to enter into global settlements. Specifically, Purdue Pharma and Teva, an Israeli manufacturer, they have reached global settlements or are negotiating global settlements of $270 million and $85 million, respectively. So, uh, who knows what kind of numbers might be involved if Johnson & Johnson's uh, subsidiaries or divisions enter into a global settlement. I think the next trial on the docket up for J&J is in Cleveland in October, uh, and I imagine that there may be some assessment or reassessment of a global settlement. Ironically, the investment community seems to react favorably when companies enter into global settlements many times because it indicates that they can put this product liability issue, i.e. the opioid issue, in their rearview mirror. Number seven, and finally, there is a big picture for J&J, &J, and what I mean is this. J&J is not just fighting on the opioid product liability front. That alone is enough to be challenging and to keep them busy. However, J&J &J also is fighting product liability on other battlefronts. They're fighting uh, product liability claims with regard to talc and a variety of 
health effects from their baby powder. Um, and uh, not only in the United States, but abroad. They are facing multiple claims with regard to pelvic mesh grafts. I'm not commenting on the merits of those claims. I'm just saying that even if they are uh, absolutely airtight in terms of their defenses, you are talking, you are looking, they are looking at monumental uh, distractions, uh, a time suck, legal fees, and uh, the monetary risk of adverse court awards, either from bench trials or from juries. And so J&J has to consider its portfolio of product liability claims that include, but aren't limited to, opioid dependence and product liability for the way that they have manufactured and marketed opioids. So uh, this decision in Oklahoma against J&J is only about a week old, but these are admittedly seven hot takes in terms of claim ramifications, claim implications, uh, some insurance coverage and, and defense strategy litigation considerations that uh, I, can, I can relate to as a claims professional. You may find more, and time may unfold other aspects of it. If you like the content here, please subscribe to the Claims Coach podcast on iTunes and leave a positive review. For more information on Quinley Risk Associates and my menu of services, please visit me on the web at www.kevinquinley.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at ClaimsCoach. That's one word, ClaimsCoach, or connect with me through LinkedIn. So I want to thank you for listening and be sure to check back for future claims and risk management podcasts from Quinley Risk Associates.